0: You, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This is God's word. Thank you, Kendra. And this is the time where if you've got kids, you want to send them back to the kids' rooms. We've got two Um, for the little ones up to three years old. They'll go back with Juliet on the side over here by the white door. Uh, for the older uh, kids, up to seven, the door back by the entryway. And we are, this is where I'll just explain to you briefly while they're headed back there, that we're in the midst of a series just going over the foundational beliefs of Christianity. And so today uh, we're at the cross. We have been, uh, we started all the way back with the idea that um, that the God of the Bible is per, pers- or portrayed as a God who speaks and declares his will and his purpose and his uh, character to us, which is a really important thing to know and understand. And we've built all the way from that to uh, where we are today, to the fact that we would need a cross. So if you wonder how we got there, uh, the sermons are all on our website. You could check that out and kind of see the journey, which I think it it is helpful to see how these beliefs kind of build upon one another. So before I jump in, I'm going to read a prayer based on the Lord's Prayer. We've said many times that we're going to have people participate in leading these in the future, and uh, I don't know where John Simon's at at the moment, but he is going to, um, yeah, he's going to start actually working with some of you if you want. So if you're interested in kind of crafting one of these prayers and sharing it with the church, talk to John Simon. He's going to start walking people through that process. I think that's going to be kind of a cool way to get people involved and, and hear some of your voices and allow the, the ways that you might pray for things to come through. So at this time, I'm going to uh, lead us in one of these prayers that is a little bit um, based on Colossians 2:13 to 15. So if you would join me in prayer. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. You created us all in the first place, and you, and you reawaken us in Christ you triumph in the end, and so we come to worship you. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You disarm the rulers and authorities. You put them to open shame. You triumph over them. All over the world, rulers are wreaking havoc. Drug lords, slum lords, dictators, abusive husbands, devious CEOs. But you, God, sent your son to suffer on a cross to triumph over all kingdoms, Your kingdom is upside down, and we long to see more of it in our time. Give us this day our daily bread. In your kingdom, the poor and weak are blessed, so give us what we need. Withhold from us what will weaken our trust in you alone. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, for on the cross you tell us the record of our debts to you is canceled. So many people owe us as well. They've taken from us what they did not earn. They've harmed us. They haven't paid us back. And we want to offer forgiveness as you do. It's difficult for us. May we learn to balance grace and justice as you have on the cross. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, for we don't know how to balance grace and justice ourselves. Guide us from the many twofold temptations of letting things slide versus being moralistic, of being too active, too inactive, of loving this life too much or too little, Guide us, for the way is too complex for our hearts to discern without your Holy Spirit. Thank you for the cross of Jesus that gives us hope, for to you is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. So today we're talking about the cross, and so much could be said uh, about the cross. I mean, this is really kind of the central uh, moment in Christianity. Uh, Whenever, when you think of Christianity uh, the cross. that's the symbol yeah that will come to mind, the symbol that you think of. And when I was in I was in Mexico actually last Sunday, I was at a wedding um, in uh, down near or a few hours from Mexico City. And I picked up a crucifix. I've never bought one before, but I thought this one was really interesting because it kind of has layers of meaning to it. Um, it's It's a modern crucifix. I like that. It doesn't. It doesn't portray Jesus so specifically that it, it feels like he's made in our image or something like that. But the other thing I like about it is that there's half of a cross with Jesus not on it, and there's half of a cross with Jesus on it. And there's there's some ideas I want to unpack from that later in the sermon, but. I think this artistic crucifix even draws out just a couple of layers of what the, the crucifixion might mean and what it, what it doesn't mean, but only a fraction of what the Bible teaches us about the cross. The Bible points to it as early as Genesis 3.15, when a serpent is going to strike the son of a woman, and then in Genesis 3.21, the first innocent sacrifice is made, an animal dies so that clothing can be made for Adam and Eve. And there's these early hints that something has to die for people who are guilty to be covered. And these are very early in the scripture. And it doesn't start there, it continues. I would venture to say every single book in the Bible, uh, in, in them you'll find allusions, signposts, and foretellings that are pointing forward to something that's coming, to someone who will suffer, to the need for a suffering Savior, to the need for a death to cover over guilt and things such as that, which we see all coming together in the cross. So today won't be exhaustive. There's just so much to say, Um, and I can only really crack the door open. So the best thing I I can think to do is just to follow this short scripture from Paul in Colossians and show you these four things he's saying because they're they're pretty good. The four things are this, on the cross our trespasses were forgiven, on the cross our debt was canceled, on the cross the rulers and authorities were disarmed, and on the cross uh, we triumph in Christ our King. So here's the first, on the cross our trespasses were forgiven. Paul said this, you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses. Now, there's some concepts in there that I assume need a little unpacking. They're not the simplest things to grasp, right? Um, you were dead. What, what is that about? Um, have any of you ever been dead before? Um, not me. I don't think so anyway. But what Paul, what Paul means here is he's saying that you're moving toward death, that something in you spiritually, that there is an inner death that's leading toward ultimate spiritual and physical death. And we do know that we're all dying. That's clear. That's obvious, right? And this is, in the scriptures, connected to this idea that we're moving away from God. There's a curse. We're moving away from the goodness of creation in which there was life and there was no death or decay. And this death we're moving toward is because of a disconnection from God, who's the one who gives us life, from our Creator. So we are living out of a reality of being separated from the source of our life and are therefore moving toward death. And God's work in our lives is to reconnect us, to bring life back to us, which is where the term born again comes from, that there would be a time when life would re-emerge within you spiritually. The second uh, idea in there is uncircumcision. Um, Out of context, it feels like a very strange thing to bring up, right? Why are we talking about that? Um, Why does anybody talk about that? But here in the Jewish faith, which Paul was referring back to, he's bringing the Jewish faith to a group of people in a city called Colossae, which is part of the Roman Empire. And he was saying, look, in the Jewish faith, the people had a sign, they had a mark upon themselves that showed that they were uniquely part of God's people in really one of the most intimate possible ways, that they were marked and they were shown to be God's people. And he was saying, you don't have that to these Colossians. And he's saying, you um, had this spiritual death within you and you didn't have this mark or this sign of being one of God's people like Jewish people had. And He's saying to them, You didn't have that, but now you have something greater. You have something greater than circumcision. And there's a deeper reality behind circumcision that God was getting at, and it all boils down to what happened on the cross, because on the cross, Jesus died as a sinless substitute for sinful people. Jesus died an innocent man, his body was buried. But because he was entirely pleasing to God, God raised him up from the dead, entirely alive, spiritually, physically, perfectly, and eternally. And if you believe this, and you can receive the cross as a point of hope for you, you have a deeper identifier than circumcision ever could have been. You have a deep identifier that you are part of the people of God. You are one of the people that sees the beauty of of what happened on the cross, except that's a strange thing to say. And and I'll explain that. Why why a cross? Why a cross? Well, the cross were where trespasses were punished in Jesus' time. Um, One of the most profound symbols of that of all time. A trespass is when you cross the line or when a boundary is crossed, okay? And we all believe in these things. And I guarantee you, go, go out into the streets, go out and find me a person that doesn't believe in trespassing. You will not find one. Um, it can be a, feel like a, a biblical word or something like that, but the idea that there are boundaries that shouldn't be crossed, there are lines you shouldn't cross, there are things you shouldn't do, things you shouldn't say. Everyone agrees in every segment of society. In a more traditional segment of society, um, you could find things like, If you're lazy, um, that's not right. You shouldn't be, and you don't deserve to get certain things if you're lazy. Or if you're disrespectful, or if you break norms or traditional practices, you shouldn't do those things. And there are certain consequences for for breaking those boundary lines. Um, In a more what you could call liberal segment of society, it would be things like restricting freedom, or failing to produce equity, or violating one's personal preferences. Those are lines that should not be crossed. We should be Respected, we should be left alone, we should not be, you know, have someone else's will layered over onto ours. Whatever the case, all throughout society, we know that there are these boundaries, and if you cross them, you deserve something. Typically, some form of punishment. And the punishment may may be in the form of like a capital punishment, like a limb for limb, eye for eye sort of thing, or like you steal money, money gets taken back from you, or something, you know, something that evens the scales. Or the punishment could be something like public shaming or loss, right? We see that in our day-to-day. If we don't have another avenue for, for bringing about justice, you know, we, we expose the, the person. Let everyone see what they've done, and hopefully they'll, they'll suffer great loss for this. That's a punishment for a trespass. See? And throughout our society, in all nooks and crannies of our society, we believe in that. We see that something needs to be done. And the cross was a horrific and incredible combination of punishment for trespasses. And here's why. that The Romans designed it to punish crossing the line with the the empire especially. Um, And what they would do, not only was it a, a place where people died, but you would die not the death of a martyr or a revolutionary in glory. You wouldn't die in battle or something like that you would die a slow death of asphyxiation while experiencing utter public shame, hanging weak and naked at the city gate for all to see. And so if you, were, if you were to imagine this here in Tucson, it'd be like as you start to drive, you know, you come off of the 10 and you're going toward the university, right? And you, you start to get down to where it's kind of nice and you're looking around. But all of a sudden, you see right next to the street, like five Crosses with naked human beings like gasping for breath, and over them would be what they had done that caused them to deserve to be there. Right? I mean, that can you would you look at that person and go, That's inspiring? Probably not. You would go, Oh my gosh, I would never want to, exp- I would never want to hang on a cross. Because not only are you dying, you're dying ashamed. You're dying with everyone looking at you, mocking you, or looking at you going, ah, I don't want to see that. That's the horrible genius of the punishment of the cross was that it ultimately went after your trespass because it gave you no glory in your death. Nothing but shame and humiliation. Humiliation. So think about this ridiculous idea, as I've described to you, crucifixion. That the God of the universe, the one who has truly drawn the lines as to what is right and good and true, who defines what a trespass is, would send a son into the world, and that son would be judged in a trial under the Roman Empire by their standards and would be wrongly convicted, even according to their standards, and killed on a cross as a trespasser and put to shame up in front of the city gates, hanging in front of everybody. God would engage in this. Why? Why in the world would God do that? There's only one good reason. And it's the Bible's reason. It's the reason Paul gives here. The only reason God, who made the rules, would do something like that was if he was doing it for someone who deserved it. Because it wouldn't be him. He would be doing it for someone else. That leads to my second idea here, that on the cross, our debt was canceled. Now, to say that we deserve to die for our trespasses... um, is to say that we have a debt that needs to be paid, each and every one of us. And to accept the work of Jesus, we are required to admit that we cannot afford to pay the debt ourselves. Paul wrote this, God made made us alive together with him, having forgiven all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it, to the cross. Now, this can be hard to swallow, hard to accept. The idea um, for some of us that we owe anything to God is hard to accept. For others, it's hard to accept that we can't deal with it or afford it ourselves. And for others, we can accept the idea of the debt, but it's very hard to believe that God would get involved and do anything about it. I want to take those in reverse order, okay? Um, some of us have no issue with the fact that we have our trespasses. Some of us could name them now. We could point back to a history of our lives that everybody knows about. You know, we haven't had the, the pleasure of staying under, under wraps in our lives, and, and people have seen us. They've been at those parties when it got a little out of hand, and we said what was really on our minds after a little liquor, right? They've been there, that's been seen, that's known, Um, or our reputation precedes us. People have heard about who we are, what we do, right? And so we would be able to say, yes, it's a fact, it's true, I am that way, I have done these things, and even more, some of us are able to say, I can't seem to stop it. Um, I can't seem to stop doing the things I don't want to do, but it's hard to believe that a good God would bother to get involved with a life like mine that a good God would want to have anything to do with me and now first of all, I want to say that if you're in that boat um, if that's if that's you uh, you are one of the most likely people in the Bible for Jesus to hang out with. This is the group that Jesus spent time with constantly. And you have a serious thing going for you And that there's no pretense to your worthiness. And so you can see the grace of Jesus really easily. And honestly, you almost have a leg up. But it's really important that you see something, because if you think that God wouldn't get involved in a life like yours, you have underestimated God significantly, okay? This God that we're talking about here is the creator of the universe, okay? This God created planets, Stars, galaxies, they all work in perfect order. And he created the earth and everything in it. He created the narwhal, right? He created the stegosaurus and every dinosaur that roamed the earth hunting its prey with utter dominance. He created the pomegranate, the coolest fruit ever. Danny's favorite, right there. Okay. You'd think he looks down at you and the fact that you've had some slip-ups in your life and says, nothing I can do. No. Proclaiming you forgiven is easy, in a sense. He has the power to do it. That's not a problem. The question is, would he do it for you, right? Would he do it for you? And here's the truth. He would. He has. He will. Why? Because he made you. And you are someone that he is extremely interested in knowing deeply. God has an amazing commitment to you, the one who he has created in his image. The Bible says things like God is just and he won't leave the guilty unpunished. That comes in the book of Exodus and you can kind of tremble at that idea. But in that same exact scripture, it says that his nature is that he is forgiving and merciful. His nature bends toward wanting to bring you close even if you have been full of darkness your entire life. Jesus' disciple, Peter, tells us uh, this. He says, God is patient toward us, not wishing that anyone should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Now, Peter said this because he knew what it was like to not only fail Jesus, but to fail Jesus miserably in front of everybody. When, you know, we're going into Holy Week, this is technically Palm Sunday, and that week was the week that, that Peter celebrated when Jesus rode into Jerusalem and was like, yeah! And he was sure that Jesus was gonna like pull out a sword, start hacking people down, and they were all gonna just like stand victorious on the, on the you know, castle walls in Jerusalem. And he was like, it's about to happen. And then all of a sudden, Jesus gets arrested, right? And he's, he's on trial and somebody goes, Aren't you one of his disciples? And Peter goes, nope. Nope, never met him. Don't know the guy. And everybody, all his friends know about it. Peter was utterly humiliated. And Jesus comes to him, and he just utterly restores him. And not only does he go like, hey, I'm going to let that slide. He goes, Peter, I'm going to give you responsibility. Why don't you take care of my people? Feed my sheep, he said. Peter's given authority days after he denied Jesus. What? That's the way Jesus is. That's the way God is. He wants to restore people. He wants to bring you back in. He wants to bring you close. His inclination is to see us turn to him. There's a word repentance. And the Bible says that it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. Repentance means this. It means you're going a direction, you have motives that are leading you in a direction, and all of a sudden, you change directions. But why do people do that? Why would you, like, why would you change directions? Say you're, you're, you're going this way, somebody says, that's the right way to go. You're gonna get rich if you go that way. You're like, yep, I want it, no problem. And then somebody's like, actually, no, you're gonna die. But actually, over there is the million dollars. Okay, I'll go this way. You change directions when the thing you're aiming at When you believe in it, when you believe that it's good, the kindness of God is the thing that turns us and changes us and moves us toward Him. Nobody is too far gone. If you can see the kindness of God, if you can just see His kindness, that's all you need. It can also be hard to accept that we can't afford it ourselves. Pre- preparing for Good Friday, I've been uh, looking into the life of this guy named Felix Lucero, and uh, we have this cool place in Tucson where our Good Friday uh, service is going to be called the Garden of Gethsemane. And he made all of the statues, the sculptures that are there. And he was critically wounded in France in the World War, and he promised Jesus that if he lived, he would he would spend his life using his talents to uh, to make sculptures for him, and. Now, that can, be, that can be motivated by gratitude or by love. It can be a method of paying God back. And the nuance is very important. Because when it's payback, then God becomes a lender who demands more than he gives. Because for God to save Lucero's life was not hard. Think about it. The God that created beings and creatures, for him to see a guy with a bullet wound and go, Live. Not hard. Now Lucero is going to spend his entire life work, 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 work to pay God back, and he could never do enough to deserve to live. He couldn't. He would spend eternity, all his life and resources, trying to pay back a debt that he can't pay back. And God's never asked us to do that. God has never once asked us to do that. It's not how it goes. I think Lucero really wanted to please Jesus. I don't think God was like mad about that, but I'm just saying you can't pay God back. Well, I once shared though the work of Christ with a coworker. I was doing uh, landscaping and somehow we got in one of those conversations. Uh, I don't remember how it went, but the guy was like, are you a Christian or something? And I was like, Yes, we're talking about this. And, uh, and he was like kind of a military guy, tough, disciplined guy. And he, so he was like, what's the deal with Christianity? Okay. I was like, well, easiest lead into telling somebody about Jesus of my life. And I, I explained it. And he was like, I have a problem with this. And I was like, okay, what, what's that? And he said, look, I've never heard anybody say this so clearly. He said, if anybody's going to die for my sins, it's going to be me. He was like, he basically said, and I think a lot of people feel this way, he was just able to articulate it. He said, I don't need anybody to fix me. I want to, When I'm done getting my life together, I want to know it was me that did it. Hmm. He knew he hadn't lived right. He knew that when he was in the, in the military, he'd made a lot of mistakes. But someday he wanted to stand before his family and friends and say, see this life I've got? I did it. I didn't need any help. The trouble is that getting our balance sheet right or paying God back, not only did God not ask us to do that, it's just a weak motive. It's not very powerful. Here's why. It leads you in one of two directions. If you think you're succeeding, you become self-righteous. Our least favorite people in the world are self-righteous people. Nobody can stand them. They're incredible sinners. And they can't even see it, right? It's frustrating. If you fail at that quest, and you were going to get it done all yourself, and you fail and you fail, there's only one person to blame. You. And you're just a failure. And when you feel like a failure, you act like a failure. I've seen it a million times. The motive that works is receiving free grace. There's an incredible moment in the Bible of a man named Zacchaeus who was, he was a trader, he was a tax collector, he, he took people's money, and he, he was just, he was an embezzler, he was a horrible guy, and he comes to Jesus, and basically uh, Jesus knows all about him, and, and, he, and he comes to him, and, and Jesus forgives him, and says, I'm coming over to your house for dinner. And Jesus does, and he sits with all his friends that were crooked people too, And Zacchaeus has this profound experience, and he sells everything that he has and he restores back what he defrauded from people. He makes this incredible change. But why? To pay Jesus? No. Jesus has already given him everything, he gave him forgiveness, he made him right with him, and he entered into his life. Now Zacchaeus is changed. He's not paying Jesus. He's just changed. Now, probably the toughest of these viewpoints to overcome, though, is the person who thinks they're better than others. And this is one of the biggest problems with religious people. When when we look at others and say, the reason God likes me is because I'm better than those people over there, then you might be in trouble. For those whose transgressions seem small, the cross will seem... Very small. Jesus has told us about this in detail. Luke 7. One day a Pharisee asked Jesus to eat with him, and he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city, this means a prostitute, who was a sinner, when she learned he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought a very expensive alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, wiping them with the hairs of her head, kissing his feet and anointing him with ointment. Now when the Pharisees who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known what sort of woman she is who's touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. When Jesus says this, by the way, it's going to get gnarly. And he said, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors, Jesus said. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which one will love him more? And Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the, large, the larger debt. And Jesus said to him, You've judged rightly. Then, turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who's forgiven a little loves a little. And he said to you, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Notice that same language of canceled canceled debt. Of course, we know the self-righteous Simon has tons of debt. He just can't see or admit it. And he's offended that Jesus offers grace to others. If Simon could just see the level of debt he had, he could receive the same grace. We can embrace debt and we need to, but we also need to know the nature of the one who holds our our debt, the one who we owe. The one who we owe is kind and forgiving, not a typical debt holder, for me, I have this unique experience of having grown up in the trailer parks. So my family, when we moved to Arizona, we were in kind of a failed state. We'd lost everything. We'd mismanaged our money. We'd made some mistakes, and we ended up living in a trailer park. And at one point, um, we, were at, we wanted a microwave, and we couldn't afford one. And so we went to one of these rental center places and if you don't know, I'm going to tell you right now that your $100 microwave at Rena Center will cost you approximately 600 bucks. Um, that's how they get you. And your trailer that costs $1000 at the trailer park that they own that they are not going to tell you you can't tow anywhere and you can't do anything with it and it's going down and plummeting in value. They'll sell it to you for 1000, but they know that for you to move it off their land will cost you $5,000, and they're banking that you don't have enough to do that, nor would you think it worth it. They're going to charge you rent. They will not be maintaining your trailer. And when you give up on it finally, you will give them the title back, and they will sell it again to somebody else. This is the nature of the slumlord, landlord, and of the payday loan and rent-a-center owner, okay? That's what you will get. I know how this kind of stuff goes. My family was there. So then, when you meet someone like our old landlord, Carson, you see a different picture. Someone who says to you, I will help you move the trailer to my property. I will charge you low, low rent for the rest of your lives. My parents were moved onto the property of a man who charged them $125 a month until they moved something like 12 years later. And you look at somebody like that and you go, this is a different type of man. This is not like that. It's important to know the nature of your debt holder. And in the cross, what we have is we have the one who created the rules. Not only does he come in and make it easier to pay your way back to God, he gets on the cross and pays everything unto death that we owe for every mistake that we've made, leaving you with how much to pay yourselves? Zero. That shows you the nature of our debt holder. which is why we can say that on the cross, the rulers and authorities were disarmed because the power that's held over us by all others than the true God and Jesus Christ, both spiritually and politically, is that of a debtor relationship. It's the power of coercion. It's the power of you owe me. It's the power of I give you this, you owe me this back. All other rulers and authorities are like this, but not God. I'm not not saying we aren't to submit to the rulers and authorities. The the Bible clearly teaches us that we should, but we need to understand that they are nothing like God. Not only are they not as powerful, they are not as good, okay? The life of our city, for example, is only temporal and temporary. We'd be a fool to think that Tucson is our eternal city. The water table is dropping, people. It's not going to last We'd be foolish to think that the United States of America is our eternal home. It's beautiful. It's good. We should seek its prosperity. But history tells us there's no guarantee. In fact, chances are it's not going to last. Why do I say this? Because the scripture we read was to a church in a city called Colossae, part of the Roman Empire. Look up pictures of it. This was the most powerful empire in the world. It is a tourist attraction of like... Partial pillars and blocks. It is done. There is no power or authority coming from there anymore. Why would we be different than the Roman Empire? But for some reason, it's far more easy for us to trust in politicians and power structures than it is in Jesus because they seem so confident. They bear the sword, they destroy their enemies, and they, they seem to get things done. And so we're always constantly hoping in them, placing our eyes on them. But listen to this. There is a kingdom that was brought to bear by a man who subjected himself to the authorities, was mistried and hung on a cross. And I want you to consider, how is it doing? I was in Phoenix, and every few blocks, there are buildings full of people coming in and worshiping Jesus. Here in Tucson, hundreds of churches of people worshiping Jesus. It's never ceased. It's not slowing down. It's gotten smaller in Europe and America. It is growing like wildfire in South America and Asia. People are coming to Jesus and saying, we worship you, we need you all over the world. It's amazing. And how did Jesus do it? How did he win the victory? How did he deal with his in- enemies? In their attempt to destroy and shame him, he exposed their shame. Today, we look at the cross that they crucified him on and we don't go, man, that's a symbol of Roman power. We look at it and say, that's a symbol of Jesus's power. How did he do that? Millions and millions of people gather. I, when I was in Mexico, I went to 8 a.m. mass. 8 a.m. mass. There are a number of masses in the morning in Mexico, in in San Miguel de Allende. I kid you not. There were more churches than the Bible Belt. I don't know if... They're everywhere. And 8 a.m. mass was standing room only, all working class citizens in church. And they... Guess what we all said together? I couldn't understand most of it. I tried, Ed and Grace. I tried. But... Here's what I heard in Spanish. I believe in God, the Father Almighty. This is the Apostles' Creed we all said together there in that church. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried and descended to hell. On the third day, he rose from the dead. That's being proclaimed worldwide across national lines, across class lines. It's incredible. The rulers, the spiritual and earthly rulers, want to rule over things with power and coercion, but the kingdom of God that came by someone dying on a cross has been growing across the world and has never ceased. We should pay attention to that, okay? And also, we should pay attention because of my last point, in the cross we cry triumph. We triumph triumph in Christ our King. Remember this, this little crucifix I showed you. I really like how half of the cross has the body of Christ and half is empty. I think there's something really amazing to acknowledging both sides of the cross. The empty cross signals our victory and Christ on the cross gives us our pattern for life. When I say that the empty cross signals our victory, we're pointing forward to Easter, and I just said in the Apostles' Creed, the Christian hope is that Jesus indeed rose from the dead, that he was the God of all creation, entered in in Christ, died a death that we should have died, but he did not deserve, and he proved that death itself had no hold on him. He was subjecting himself to it to save us, and he rose victorious. If that's true, then nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, which is what the Bible says. If that's true, like if he actually took the entire sting of sin and death, then nothing that you've ever done would take you to a place where God couldn't save you. And it means that God is powerful enough to overcome any obstacle in your way. Here's the great exchange that Jesus offers the world. His sacrifice, his innocent and righteous life, paid the debt we owe for every line that we've crossed. And not only are we debt-free with a clear balance sheet, Jesus offers us more. He actually just gives us himself, his status, his life, his his righteousness. It's this way. When God looks at you, he doesn't see like, Ah, here's, here's you, the the concoction of mistakes and bad attitudes and how much you ignored God this week. Because of Jesus, when he looks at you, he sees all the worthiness of Jesus layered on top of you. So all that he has to encounter is just the amazing things he created in you because all the sin and shame has been taken care of. And you can stand with him perfectly reconciled as if you were as righteous as Jesus. Because Jesus was as righteous as Jesus. That's an incredible thing. And it's an incredible motive to help you obey. It's an incredible motive to help you obey. How many, um, how many of you as children had like a parent who yelled at you constantly? And they were, you know, or just imagine this scenario. They just yelled at you, like, hey, stop it. No, no running. And you went. And you would just go sit down after a nice yell fest and go, I'm so glad I live with them. That's great. Yeah, not a lot, right? Or how many of you have ever heard somebody say, you know what, the more I get hassled by the government, the the happier I am. (laughs) No, you never heard it, right? You don't hear those things. You hear people say, they they will say when they have a good parent or a good role model or person in their life, or they feel like they've had a good experience in a system or an institution, all of a sudden they go, I like that place. I want to be there. I want to be more like that. When we see something good, it transforms us and we want to follow it. When we see how much goodness God has given us in Jesus, it changes. Our hearts. The empty cross tells us we have victory in Christ. Now I'm going to tell you a story about my dad really quick. I know I've gone, yeah, you guys are troopers, but you're going to get one more story. Um, so my dad here. Some of you have heard this story, but back when I was a kid, I was uh, I was getting pretty interested in you know some rated R films. I'd had a little repertoire of ones I'd seen. Um, you, all you who go to mission know rated R films get shown here from time to time. I'm not saying everything rated R is evil, but this particular film that I had on my mind was uh, was horrible. So I'm just gonna I'm gonna leave it at that. And so my dad and I we go to a bookstore. We take a walk, and we're in the we're in the bookstore, and uh, and I'm looking and uh, I'm looking for this movie, and there it is. And I was like, oh, you know. So I got it, and I'm thinking, okay, how do I pitch this to good old dad? Thinking think my dad's kind of an old man. He's not really going to understand. So I walked up to him. I was like, Dad, can I get this movie? And he's like, let me see. And I was like, ah. You know, and I let him look at it. He's looking at it, kind of scratching his head. He goes, what's it about? And I was like, oh, it's about these kids. You know, they get in some trouble. You know, they're just kind of like goofing off and stuff. And he's like, uh-huh. And, I was, and he's like, are you sure? This doesn't look like a great movie you should be watching. I was like, oh, yeah, it's totally fine. And he's like, okay so he buys it for me. The whole walk home, I'm just pumped. I'm just like sucker, you know? I got it. He bought it for me. Get home, my mom's not home and my dad says, uh, "Hey, let's uh let's watch it." And I'm like, "No, we don't need to watch it. You know, that's not let's not do that." He's like, "No, I think we should. Let's pop it in. Why not?" And thus commences the most uncomfortable two hours of my life. And there's moments where I'm just like hiding. I'm just like... "Ah." There's moments where I laugh at something. I'm like... I look over. He's just looking at the TV. I'm like, never mind. And it's just... ooh, Just pain. I'm in pain. He didn't say a word. We get to the end of the movie and he goes, well, you think we should take it back? And... Everything in me wanted this movie out of my house. I wanted it out because here's why. Number one, my dad was a good guy. This movie and my dad in the same room made no sense. It did not fit. It didn't work. It didn't fit his presence. And the other thing was he'd exposed my shame. But he didn't yell at me. He didn't say one negative thing to me. He just let me see it and experience it and feel it. And then we walked all the way back to the bookstore, which was an hour long, and there wasn't one moment I didn't feel entirely loved by my dad. Not one. I didn't feel he was looking down on me. I didn't feel like he thought anything negative about me. We just walked to the store And we gave it back and he patted me on the shoulder and we went home. Now that's the kind of motivation that the cross can bring to us. Why do I say that? It doesn't yell at us. It doesn't control us. It exposes our shame, so it does something about sin. But at the same time, it's loving, it's sacrificial. My dad took five hours of his life to do that. That took a while. And he just gave his time and he gave me his kindness, and my shame got exposed without him ever criticizing me at all. When you understand what Jesus did on the cross, how he disarmed the powers and authorities, how he exposes shame instead of just coercing and bringing about power, you will be absolutely transformed, and you will know how to minister to other people, because that's, that's the calling of us Christians, and it's hard to do. It takes a lot more creativity It takes a lot more pondering the cross. But doing that sort of gospel work, and I'm telling you, that undercuts all people's qualms about Christianity. When they see, you've loved me sacrificially, you've exposed my shame, but I'm 100% forgiven and safe. It's incredibly powerful. And that's what we have happening on the cross. The night that Jesus was betrayed, right before he went to the cross, he exhibited this for us in that he took the bread that was on the table. Now, this bread that was on the table was a reminder to them of when they were delivered from the Egyptians. They were there; um, that it, all Israelite people were ready to celebrate, and Jesus took this bread that they, when they remembered that God had delivered them, and he said, "I'm giving it a new meaning, essentially. So this is my body." but what, what happened to his body? Is my body broken for you? Then he took the wine from the table. Wine is what you celebrate with. It's what you bring out at the wedding. It's, the, it's party time. And he says, here's, here's how I'm going to interpret this for you. This is my blood, blood of a new promise, blood of a new covenant that's poured out for the forgiveness of many. Do you know what that means? That means that every time you look back to the Old Testament and look at all the things that God said, Jesus is finishing it, fulfilling it, and his body being broken for you. And when you look forward into the New Testament of all the hope and the promises and the day that Jesus returns and there's a wedding feast, that Jesus is the one who has accomplished that for you. And it all happened on the cross. The invitation today is to receive Jesus Christ by faith, to come to the cross, And come to it not as one who's trying to pay back your debts, trying to get right with God, but coming as one who says, wow, Jesus, you would do that for me. Okay, I accept. That's faith, and that's all it takes. I'm going to pray for us in just a moment. There's going to be a time for a silent confession. We take two minutes of silence, and this is just time for you to talk about You know, anything that came up in here with God, you can just come before God in prayer. um, Or you can just sit silently and think. And by prayer, I mean, you can just say, God, what in the world is this all about? That's a perfect prayer. You can do that. Or you can say thank you for the cross and just think about it. Or you could bring specific things to him, specific things you need to confess or certain things you just want to say you're grateful for. After that time of silence is over, Mike's going to be up here. He's going to lead us in some singing. This singing is, is what we hope would come from a grateful heart. You're welcome to join in. You're welcome to just observe. And then people are going to come up and take the Lord's Supper one by one, and I'll serve it. If you, if you believe in Jesus, even if you're like, I, I think I'm just starting right now, you can come up and do that. But also, this is a sacred thing for us, and it's totally cool and respectable even if you don't believe it, if you just sit back, that's okay. Okay. Um, After we sing together, do confession, and take the Lord's Supper, it's dinner time. Um, Because when Jesus sat with his disciples, um, they didn't just do a ritual, they spent time in each other's lives. And that's what we're trying to do here too. So you can always ask us any questions you have about the cross or anything else um, as we hang out out together and have dinner. So I'm going to say a quick prayer, and then there's going to be two minutes of silent space, and that time's for you. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the chance to gather together and think about the cross. It's it's hard to connect with sometimes the fact that years and years ago, on a day like today, you were riding into Jerusalem. Your disciples were worshiping you and proclaiming that you were going to be the king. and Then you went into the temple and drove out the money changers, and the children followed you around, and people got confused. Religious leaders got mad. And then Judas betrayed you, and then you were arrested. And just days later, you were convicted of a crime you didn't commit. And then you were subjected to this humiliating, painful, awful death on a cross. And from that cross, you said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Those words are for us. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. As we confess before you, heal our hearts, show us your goodness, and draw us to you.